You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are in Hosea 8 today. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, just know that you're always welcome to grab one of ours in the back of the room. You can keep it. It's yours. Uh, So we're going to look at Hosea 8 uh, here in a moment. You know, there is uh, a time in our life, a moment in our life, when we are all confronted with an uncomfortable truth, a truth that comes to us uh, in different moments, uh, within different contexts, among different people, but it always most certainly will come. It comes in nonchalant, innocent ways, or it might have, it might have the sting of defiance or critique. Uh, there will be a day that somebody looks at us and from their mouth will roll these words. Man, you remind me so much of your dad. Or man, you, you just acted like your mother in that moment. And they will use those words to either push our buttons right? Or to bring encouragement to our life. And we will, we will react to those words on the scale of nostalgia to outright outrage. And for many of you, that moment has already happened. I know it has happened for me. And for the rest of you who it has not, your destiny lies in front of you. No matter how much we might want to escape it, no matter how much we might want to deny it, there are good and bad ways that our parents have marked us, have shaped us, have primed us, that someday, whether we want to or not, will become visible outputs in our life. They are innate truths that we express, whispers of the evidence of how we are brought up. Our, our scripture today reveals to us that there are other innate truths like us resembling in some ways our parents that are inescapable. Innate, unavoidable truths that play themselves out in our lives and within our relationships, and they are whispers that reveal the truth of our design and the depth of our brokenness. Our scripture contends for us today that as much as we might want to deny or forget, we cannot escape the truth of our design. We cannot escape God's intentions for us, nor can we overcome the depth of our brokenness in our own sin. They are undeniable truths that are seen and known in various outputs in our lives, in the normative and the mundane activities of our life, that whether we want to believe it or not, will make known who God is, will serve as evidence, truth of who he is and how he has designed us. St. Augustine said once that all truth is God's truth. And in Hosea 8, we read this text and that truth is illuminated for us. And so we're gonna break this up in chunks, but let's pray first. Father, we come before you today And we are grateful that you have sought fit that we could gather here today. We are grateful 
for your goodness to us. Jesus, we are grateful for your sacrifice, that your atoning work on the cross for our forgiveness. And Holy Spirit, we are grateful today that you are alive and active in our lives. And so Holy Trinity, will you work together today in our lives to bring conviction and joy around this, that we would flourish by your word and by your truth and in your spirit. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Hosea 8, starting in verse 1. We'll have it on the screen. You're welcome to join us in your Bibles. This is the prophet Hosea speaking. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we Israel know you. Israel spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. In this text, we see God again warning his people that there is one that looms over them like a vulture or an eagle is sometimes translated um, for this word that eventually will destroy them. And what he is talking about, as we've said in weeks prior, this is the Assyrian nation. And they were known in that time to have brutal and fearsome warriors. And the reason that Israel is going to be destroyed is not because of the fearful and brutal nature of the Assyrians, not because they lack the strength to defeat them. It's not because the Israelites are tactically incompetent or that they haven't spent enough time building their defenses. The sole reason for Israel's demise is that they have transgressed the covenant of God. They have rebelled against the law. Now to us, when we think of the term law, we might say, well, that seems like an awful lot. They broke a few laws and the result of it is sure, pure destruction and death. But let us remember the context in which the law was given to God's people. If we remember immediately after the fall, when all humanity creation broke and chaos and rebellion has ensued ever since, God faithfully pursued his creation. And he picked a people, a nation, through a man named Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And he promised to them and his descendants a covenant, a relationship with the sovereign God of the universe. He committed himself to them unconditionally in a relationship of love. And the law was given as a gift to his people to preserve them, protect them, guide them, and purify them. That they would live as community of faithful, or communities of faithful believers for their own joy, seeing the law as the authority of their life. The law was the absolute authority over his people. And so for God's people to break this covenant isn't them just breaking a a law. It is an outright denial and rejection of the promises of God, of forsaking of his love and forgetting the obligations that he put himself under to be in relationship with them. To us, breaking the covenant or law sounds bad, but for God's people to break this covenant is an outright rejection of the source of life. What everything means And in verse 2, we see these same Israelites defensively responding to God, saying, what are you talking about? Like, like we know you. What is this act of disobedience that you're talking about? Israel's resistance to God's authority had hardened them to the point 
that they now refuse to accept God's word through Hosea. And I think their denial here helps us understand a bit of how sin works in our lives. To live in sinful rebellion against God ultimately blocks our desire for reconciliation with him. It distorts our perspective of how needy we are. Human logic has us to believe this, that the more we sin, the more that we know about our sin. We become experts on it. But it's the exact opposite in the arena of sin. The more we sink into rebellion and rejection, the less we recognize it as sin. And the more we rationalize it until we are thoroughly deluded. And so the misunderstanding of God's authority over our lives results in a blindness and an unawareness like we see present in verse two. His word doesn't disturb them anymore. They're not challenged by it anymore. It doesn't make sense to them. Israel in their rebellion has spurned the good. And this term good in Hebrew is a rich, comprehensive term that that talks about the knowledge of God, but more than the knowledge of God, it's the knowledge of his gifts to his people, his good gifts that he wants to give us, his commandments, the promises that he has made to us. It's the gift of hope in eternity, hope for the future, optimism and confidence in God's faithfulness. This verse says that Israel, they made a choice. They have rejected not only the good, but the good one, as is sometimes translated. In rejecting what God stands for, they have rejected him as well. And now, as the consequence, Israel is going to be flooded by enemies that come in judgment of their denial and their waywardness. In verse 4, it says this. It says that they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own sake. So we understand that God ordained the nation of Israel to be governed by himself. That that he would be their king. And that his lordship would be preeminent over all of the happenings and the desires of their life. The joy of God's people was in worshiping and enjoying their God, enjoying his love and his faithfulness. It was supposed to be all that they needed. But here's what I want you to notice. You know, for the last several chapters, we have watched the folly of God's people that have forgotten God. There's no knowledge of God in the land, it says. But what do they do? What is natural to them? Even in their forgetfulness, what is natural to them? They set up kings. They worship idols. There's something fascinating in Israel's actions that reveals something true, something good, yet tragically misplaced. And I want to put a finger in this because I want to add to it. I want to come back to it later. Verse 5, I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. And so here's what they're saying is God is irate that of all people, his own people have stumbled into idol worshiping. 
the Israelites have begun to worship this God named Baal. It's often depicted or imaged as a golden calf. And I love, I love God's directness here. I, I love his directness. He says, as a matter of common sense, he says, it's from Israel. Like, do you really, like, this thing was created by you. It was a craftsman made it, he says. It is not God. Like, this has the sound of an adult going into the room of a child who has lost their mind absolutely crazy after losing in a video game. And you hear the parent walk into the room and say, what is wrong with you? Why are you acting so crazy? It's just a video game. And how do we complete that? It's not real life. God's people have rejected him. And it has to be mind-blowing that in their rejection, they have inserted in his place something that they created, a man-made object that they're now worshiping. You know, one of the things that we have said over and over as we've read through the book of Hosea is that the people of this day in 700 BC are not dissimilar to us. Like technology has certainly changed, hasn't it? Civilization has changed. Power in the world has changed hands. But what is inside of us hasn't. How many times have we been guilty of this very thing that God might say to us? Something like, it's from China. (laughs) It was made in a factory. You have to plug it in. It is not your God. Or it's on the internet. It's not real life. It's not your God. There are so many things that we could put in there. But what I think is at the core of all of this for them and for us comes at the end of verse 5. When Hosea says this, he says, how long will they be incapable of innocence? Another way to translate this in Hebrew would be to say, how long will they be incapable of pure and saving religion? We remember this is our God who has never been anything less than faithful and good. And he has watched his people like a yo-yo go up and down, back and forth, rebel and retreat, rebel and retreat back into him. They have proven themselves time and time again of being incapable, yet they're hardened to it. But the one thing they really desire is what? Salvation. Deliverance but they seek it guidingly and waywardly. This evidence, uh, the evidence of, of, of this is resoundingly similar to them in our lives. That what we really want is salvation. What we really want is deliverance. What we really want is to know peace and joy and contentment for somebody to step into our lives and save us from ourselves and to save us from others but we don't know how. We are incapable of being innocent. We are without hope, but we believe that someday we will find it, whether it's in another job, another relationship, eventually in retirement, we will keep pursuing it. And then the scripture says this, 
For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. Year after year, Israel has hitched its wagon to the popular musings of the day, to the in vogue, to the trendy, to the pleasing of their eyes. They have hoped for what the world could give them, what the world could promise them, whether it be the god Baal or the god Molech that they once worshipped or Dagon or Tammuz, another false god. Whatever the newest god of the moment was, they gave themselves to it. And so their corruption wasn't a once-in-a-lifetime decision. It wasn't like a moment, but yet it was slowly over time. They began to give more and more and more of themselves away. It wasn't just one choice. It was lots of choices. Till eventually, they became, as God says, a useless Vessel. They lost what was unique about them. They lost what was distinct about them, what was different about them, what was honorable about them. You know, in our house, we have, in our cupboard, we, we've got several coffee mugs. And one of them is, is super skinny and tall. It's very deceitful because you think it holds a lot of coffee, but it doesn't. And it gets cold really, really fast. And I, I disdain this cup. Right? And, and so here's what I've, I've learned. We never use the mug, ever. We don't use it anymore. If it is the only mug left in the cupboard, I will go in the dishwasher and find a dirty one and I will wash it. Nobody wants this mug. It is the joke of all other mugs in our cupboard. It just sits there. And this is what has happened to Israel. They once were unique. They once were honorable. They once were distinct. They have sold themselves out. They've lost it. They're no longer honorable. They're the laughing stock of the nation. And no one wants to be around them. And in verse 9, Hosea says, For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers, though they hire allies among the nations. I will soon gather them up. And the king and the princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. If you know anything about donkeys, which I didn't, but now I do. uh, Donkeys are a stubborn animal, hard-headed breed. They are uneasily tamed. They were designed and meant to live together in herds, to mate inside the context of the herd. But the most stubborn and wayward ones venture off alone by themselves away from the pack. Hosea says that Ephraim, or Israel, is like a wild donkey who does something stupid and unnatural. She wanders off into the wilderness where it is very dangerous, looking for a mate, alone and unknowingly pray for the lions and the wolves. And who is the mate that Israel finds, it's Assyria, who will end up destroying her. Hosea very poetically says that the nation of Israel is like a prostitute, a pitiful prostitute, stubborn alone, searching for a partner who has sunk so low 
that she is paying her lovers. She is paying to be adulterous. She can't even support herself anymore in her occupation. Verse 11, because Ephraim has multiplied, multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him many laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. And so if we look in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 12, God instructs his people towards specific worship, right and good worship. God denotes in that text a proper place and time for them to worship him. Because in the time prior to that, in the desert, God says that people essentially worship God however was right in their own eyes. But God was clear in telling the Israelites that worship was not a matter left to the individual to decide what pleased them. That authentic worship was solely concerned about pleasing God. And in this day, the Israelites disobeyed God's command. They disobeyed it and they created altars of worship and altars of sacrifice all over the land for their convenience, for their comfort. They made the temple into a franchise and they had little temple franchisers open little temple satellites throughout the land. And it was not what God had wanted them to do. They had bent their worship towards convenience and comfort, and they had corrupted it in doing so. It quickly made worship about pleasing them when worship was always intended to be about pleasing God. They ignored him here in the most important juncture of any man or woman's relationship with God, worship. We were made to worship God. We were made to love him. Israel now makes token sacrifices without true repentance, without remorse, without humility at all. And so God says through Hosea, Hosea look, it doesn't matter if I, if I would write 10,000 laws, if I would tell you all the desires of my heart, if I wrote down all the words and all the commands and everything and, and that you could ever think of, because if I did, you would simply ignore them you would regard them as a strange thing. Like I am sure that the Israelites would have been overjoyed if available to them was a comprehensive collection of the story of God that they could have personally and have access to that was easy to read, sort of like we do. Yet because they were so enamored with themselves, God says that they regarded his word as a strange thing. I mean, that is convicting for me. Is our word strange to us? Do we know what's in there? Or do we let other people tell it to us for us? Do we spend more time listening to what it says or more time trying to make it say what we want it to say? Hosea 13, verse 13. 
As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. This is God saying they've corrupted my sacrificial system. They've corrupted what I've asked them to do. They're eating the sacrifices. And in 14, now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. And this is the key text in this whole chapter. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, so I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. So friends, here's here's the picture I want to build for you from this text that I think the scripture builds for us mainly. Uh, There are so many of us, there are so many in this world that say that if God would just give me proof that he existed, then I would believe. Uh, Demanding evidence of God in the world, and they say, when I'm satisfied, then and only then will I believe. Then and only then will I follow him fully. I think that there are wonderful truths in Hosea 8 that serve to us as definitive evidences to who our creator God is. The core of this text is Israel forgetting who God is. They've rejected him. An all-out chaos has taken place. We've read it in all of these chapters. But what do they do? And I've asked this, but what do they do inside of the chaos? Even in their rejection of God, what do they do? They say, hey, we need somebody to lead us. I don't know what we're doing. We need somebody to bring order to this mess. They say the scriptures, they made kings, but not through me. They made princes, but I knew it not. What else did they do? They worshiped. Not the one true God, but their version of him. And they did it consistently and ritually. You remember God said, for it is from Israel, a craftsman made it. It is not God. You're worshiping this. They're worshiping a stinking golden calf made by men when at their service is the triune God of the universe. There is a fundamental need inside of themselves to give themselves away to something else, to be rescued by something through someone else. We read in this scripture that they sense their incompleteness. They search out for aid and for help. They go to Assyria They go to other nations seeking to build pacts and agreements for help. They, in the scripture, they sense their vulnerability as humans. And the scripture says that they multiply their fortified cities. What do they want? They want protection. They want security. They may have rejected God or seemingly forgotten him, but every single fiber of their being declares their need for him. Now, Blaise Pascal wrote maybe one of the most famous uh, philosophical lines about uh, who God is and our need for him. Pascal said this, that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God, the creator, made known through Jesus Christ. God has made us in a way to trust him and his authority to submit ourselves and our lives under his lordship, 
that he may bring order to it, that he may make sense of it to it for us, that he might help us know what is good and right. King David says in one of his Psalms, he says, know that the Lord is our God, that he, it is he who made us. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. We are sheep that were designed to live under a shepherd. Designed to live under a shepherd. The Israelites may have walked away from the one true God of the universe, the one true God over everything, but everything in them confesses the same truth that they need one. They, were, they create another authority, another Lord, another ruler on earth through things that they made. And the same is true for us. We make kings and appoint rulers. How many times have we believed that this person is ultimately going to fix this for us? That if this person would just get in charge, then, then everything will be all right. Like we were designed to have a shepherd king, and we have an immensely good one. But we spend most of our time looking for something on this world that will never be him. But it's the pursuit of our life. We were made to worship that shepherd. It's the whole sum of our lives. We were made to worship and enjoy God. But instead of worshiping the one true God, we spend lifetimes searching and worshiping little G-gods that flounder and frustrate us. One after the next, we sow into the wind. All of our life centers around worship. All of it. And what we worship creates our identity. Whether it's money or fame or success, whether it's our children or our jobs or other people, we worship to the day that we die. But is it the right thing? Yet our worship and our desire to worship reveals that we were made to worship. All of us sense our fragility, our vulnerability. As the scripture would tell us in Genesis 3 after the fall, we are currently naked and ashamed. We know the weight of the fall. We know in ourselves the weight of brokenness. We know what that feels like. We know what it means to not be in a whole relationship with God because of our sin. And from that moment, humanity, us included, has made security a priority in our lives. We want to be safe. And so what do we do? We buy property. We put up fences. And we hang cameras. We lock our doors. We fortify ourselves. We protect ourselves in relationships. Because to be known is too risky. To be known is to be found lacking. To be known means that we open ourselves up to being hurt. Yet our desire for security so richly points to the conclusion that there once was something that we were absolutely secure in. 
We know that we are lacking. We know that we need help. We take it where we can find it today. Whether it's a smooth voice or a motivational spark, a a hopeful promise, a momentary pleasure, we seek substance and meaning constantly. Yet isn't it our the quest for our identity and our purpose revealing that there is one in which we are to have all of our identity in. All of it. All of the pursuits of our life contends to us this one thing that we were made by God for God. All the formative habits and desires of our life display his design. We seek order. We need shepherded. We we are made to serve something. We were made to worship something. We are designed to find joy and completion in our creator. And when we don't, everything breaks. And there is no peace. There is no joy. All of the happenings of our life display these fundamental truths. They display his fundamental design. And that has been true of every human that has ever walked this earth. Paul writes it this way in Romans chapter one. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to, it, it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that we have been made, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And what that means is that there is an undeniable truth that will display itself in all of the context of our lives, with every person in our life, in every moment of our lives. That the evidence of our life points to this one very thing, this one very truth, that you and I need God. You and I need God. And that we were made for him. And without him, we will still pursue lesser things because he made us for himself. And you can't ignore your design. You can corrupt it. You can try to forget it. But you will not be able to ignore it in how you live. And the other thing that we cannot ignore is our incapability. Like we want to be saved from our circumstances. We want to be saved from our failings. We want to be saved from our lives. We just don't, we just don't know how. But we like to think that we do. And we like to try. But time and time again, what do we prove? We prove that we're incapable. And that incapability is evident. If we are so humbled and able to remove the pride from our own eyes to see it. Every one of us has existed, that has existed, has sought salvation, has sought deliverance from this life. There is something missing in us. There is something lacking in us, and it's evident to all of the world around us, just sometimes not ourselves. But here's what is joyful. God's question of how long Will they be incapable of innocence is one of joyous foreshadowing of the one who will and did come that is more than capable because God will do it himself. 
God will do himself for himself what he longs in his people. He will take our guilt. What is innocent will be made guilty. What was clean and pure becomes defiled. What was holy will become sinful. That in Christ, God's people come to salvation by acknowledging the very thing that we fight tooth and nail to deny. Our utter incapability. Because in the kingdom of God, weakness is strength. And our joy is found in a man who died on the cross for our sins. Friends, all the evidence of our life points to one thing, that we need Jesus. It is plain and evident. And there is chaos and folly that flow from a life that rejects his good and right design and sets their hearts and their minds on other things. We can see it in the folly of the Israelites, can we not? And we think, "Ah, if they could just get it together. But the same can be said of us. Without Christ and without humble faith required to know him, we will worship and live for things that are outside of our design. And regardless of what we worship, what we pursue, we will create whispers of truth that show exactly who God is in our deep, deep need for him. Would you pray with me? Lord, sometimes we look for your truth. Uh, Sometimes we look for evidence of who you are um, through manifest things like miracles and voices from the sky um, through um, an arrangement of events that turn out in, in a way that we got something that we never could have imagined. But Lord, here in this text, you remind us, as Paul does, that the truth of you is clear and evident. It's clear, Lord, that our whole life is bent by your design. That the truth of our need for authority, our desire to worship, our realization of our need for security, and even the feeling of our lacking reflect the glorious truth of our design. That as Pascal says, that you and you alone are the only thing that fits our hearts. You're the only cure for our life. And so Lord, we thank you. We thank that you have revealed yourself to us. We thank you that your grace supplies us with forgiveness and grace. Jesus, we love you. And we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen.